Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, just to introduce our speaker to you and run you through the format, and then Olga will be giving a speech, and we'll be opening up the floor to the audience. Um, to introduce our speaker, Pussy Riot, the 21st century's most famous and prominent feminist anarchist group, was founded in 2011 and has a rotating cast of influential members who use music and guerrilla-style performance art to oppose Putin's regime and highlight the humanitarian record in the country. The band since then has expanded into literature and has transcended into a collective. For most of us, Pussy Riot has represented a new age of feminism that has empowered us more than we'd expected. And for a slightly older audience, they have also represented a fight that remains to be won. We are delighted tonight to be joined by our member, Olga, who is a performance artist, a book editor, and a musician for an address. Um, to quickly run you through the format, she's going to give a speech, which will be followed by a moderated Q&A, and then we'll be opening up the floor to the audience. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming our speaker. Um, hello, everyone. I'm very sorry for the delay. Um, I'm going to read from the page, pages, because I'm not a native speaker. I hope you will forgive me. Um, and yes, hello, everyone. My name is Olga Borisova, and I'm a Pussy Riot member, activist, performer, and a book editor. Um, I joined Pussy Riot when, um, in 2016, um, a year after I left my job in the police. I was 18 years old when I suddenly had this crazy idea that I want to be useful for society and I can do that in Russian police. Um, quite soon I've realized that the system itself is designed in a bit different way. I've been taught how to follow commands and orders rather than how to look, um, how to work with people seeking help. I've been told that if there is a person that needs to be detained, um, we'll find a charge. <sighs> I, was, uh, I left the police and became an activist. I was working with political prisoners and then joined Pussy Riot. Uh, you probably know Pussy Riot because of the news about three girls being arrested after the political action that took place in the church. Uh, but let's talk what happened after. After spending two years in prison, Pussy Riot established a media outlet called Media Zona. Um, it's available in English as well. Uh, that was the first media in Russia that started to focus their journalism on covering police brutality, prison violence, and court trials. In Russia, we say, if you want to learn about Russia, look at their prisons, because it's a country in a miniature form. Pussy Riot didn't stop after their prison term. We continued to do street actions, art projects, and charities. And since Putin started a full-scale war in Ukraine, we've been touring with our show Riot Days, which we call a punk manifesto. Um, on these concerts, we raise money for Ukrainian Children's Hospital Ahmadid in Kyiv. Um, and this hospital treats children that have been attacked by Russian army. So far, we've uh, attracted more than 80,000 euros. Um, we are often asked, what can be done to stop the war? But let's learn what led to this war. Putin became president in 2000. In his interview, he states that Russia is a part of European culture, and he looks forward to establishing close cooperation with the West, Europe, United States, and NATO. But within a year, he begins to control the media, primarily television. Later, this television will lie about the details of the tragedies that will occur in his, in his first term, like sinking 
of the Kursk submarine, the terrorist attack in school in Bislan, the terrorist attack in Moscow, and many others. Since then, there has not been a single TV channel in Russia that has not been a propaganda mouthpiece. All state channels are connected to Putin and his gang, and they work directly to keep him in power. Lies in the news, forbidden topics, and taboo names. The Russian public does not have an access to independent information on television. It is very important for me to tell you about this because without such powerful Third Reich propaganda, there would be no Vladimir Putin. In 2012, the protest on Balotnaya Square was motivated by claims by Russian and foreign journalists, political activists, and members of the public that the, elections pro the election process was fraudulent. As a result, criminal cases were opened against 17 activists. Many of them received prison terms of four and five years for trying to drag the policemen away so that they would stop beating people. This was the biggest protest and the last one that gathered so many people. If fascist regime in 20th century chose mass repressions in order to suppress anti-government activities, Putin's neo-fascism is focused on political opponents and brutal trials. Demonstrative repressions do not obey any law. This is how fear is born. In other words, the political persecution of activists from Bolotne showed everyone in the country that what will be the price if they are thinking about the protest. Putin's regime divides activists and society. The status of an activist automatically means that Russian law will be applied differently than the to, to majority of citizens. And at the same time, with elements of unpredictability and outrage. By the time Putin annexed Crimea in 2013, Russians protested the falsified election results, protested against uh, the new anti-constitution laws, protested against the persecution of Michael Khodorkovsky, Pussy Riot, and against the corruption in the government. The most popular slogans uh, have remained unchanged for 15 years. Um, Russia without Putin, freedom for political prisoners, Putin is a thief, Russia will be free. For your understanding, all this time world leaders were coming to meet with Putin. International companies made deals with Russia for the supply of gas and oil. The West turned a blind eye to all violations of democracy, recognized him as a president, but certainly was deeply concerned. In 2013, Vladimir Putin's political rating was falling, and after the revolution in Ukraine, they were planning a small victorious war. Putin couldn't forgive Ukraine for its desire for a future without Russia. The Russian army invades the territory of the Crimean Peninsula. They hold a referendum of the, on the annexation of Crimea to Russia. The real international independent observers were not allowed. Soldiers with machine guns were everywhere in the territory of Crimea. Back then, the Ukrainian army could not repel the attack. The number of political prisoners is growing. People are jailed for Facebook posts. For example, Boris Stamakhin received six and a half years of prison for the post Crimea is Ukraine. After the annexation of Crimea, the Russian opposition hoped, hoped to, um, that after all the elect electoral fraud, corruption, beatings, illegal detentions, and political assassinations, the West would respond with strong sanctions and politically isolate Putin. But the sanctions were rather nominal, and Russia was able to adapt to them. Yes, the Russian people couldn't eat mascarpone anymore, but Putin is still a president. Even more so, after the 2013 weapon embargo, France, Germany, and Italy continued to sell arms to Russia. But the West did not recognize Crimea as Russian territory. 
Now propaganda not only hates Ukraine, but the whole West. The term gay rob was created. Every day on the news, TV presenters talk about the horrible United States and Europe. They come up with fake stories about how real Europeans hate the governments and how much they like Putin. Europe is morally bankrupt. It's a place where people can marry animals and parents can change the sex of their children. And of course, the institution of marriage and family also doesn't exist anymore. It's parent number one and parent number two. Um, later, when Putin will change the constitution in order to be in power forever, he will mention that we need normal families, two genders, and please, no transformers, meaning transgenders. In 2015, right across the street from the Kremlin, opposition politician Boris Nemtsov was assassinated. He was known for his support for Ukraine and his consistent anti-Putin rhetoric. And of course, those who ordered the murder were never found. The Russian system, if you like, is a mix of the monarchy and the Soviet KGB. Everyone worships the Tsar, he cannot be criticized, and gulags have been built for the enemies of the state, and criminal articles have been invented for those who tell political jokes. Speaking of good old Soviet methods, those who oppose Putin are imprisoned, poisoned, or killed. The tradition of political poisoning is more than 100 years ago. Sorry, years old. Um, laboratory X, uh, the first laboratory of military poison created by the NKVD. Opposition figures became victims of those experiments. Putin and the new KGB, FSB, are proud of this tradition and continue it. Alexander Litvinenko, Sergei Skripal, Vladimir Karamurza, Pyotr Virzilov, and Alexei Navalny. On February 24th, Putin invades Ukraine. Many journalists in the West ask me uh, why Russians do not protest. But they are protesting Russia. I'm proud of partisans that are setting fire to military commissariats, risking their lives and freedom. Since the beginning of a full-scale war in Ukraine, political climate had changed. Now we have military censorship and a bunch of new anti-constitutional laws. Now you can go to prison for eight years just for saying no to the war, or even for calling it a war, and not special military operation. Putin's Russia has always been crazy and absurd, but with the start of the war, this has reached a whole new level. For example, a year ago, a man came out with a poster, no to fascism. He was arrested, and then the official court decision was that this is discreditation of the Russian army. People that are protesting, are not, they're not pussy riots, and they don't have such media resource uh, that Western newspapers write about them. So while we have such a resource, we will talk about them. I want to tell you about Alexandra Skichlenka. She's an activist of a feminist resistance movement. She's done an amazing action. She was exchanging price tags in supermarkets, and instead, she would, instead of the regular price, she would, um, put a crazy amount of rubles to attract people's attention. And then it would be written, Russian army is committing war crimes in Ukraine. The amount, this amount of children killed by Russian army. Um, and of course, she is arrested, and now she is facing a sentence um, from five years uh, in prison up to 15. I wasn't surprised that Putin started a full-scale war against Ukraine. Rationally, I'm not. I'm surprised that so many people, decision makers, Western politicians, and world leaders did nothing to stop him. Pussy Riot had several speeches in European, British, and American parliaments, but after all deep concerns, many of these countries are still buying Russian gas and oil. I'm glad Britain doesn't. 
But do we know exactly how much of the stolen Russian money is here? How many of the kids of Russian oligarchs are already British citizens? How many of them are studying in Cambridge? Russia is not producing anything crucial to the world. All they have is gas money and resources. That's why we call Western countries for a complete embargo. All this system works on this money. They beat us, they imprison us on this money, and they kill innocent Ukrainians uh, with this money. The only thing it takes to uh, is to stop prioritizing money over human lives, stop being hypocrites, stop being indifferent, and listen to activists. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's it. Do you want me to pour some tea for you? Yeah. Um, just to start off with a very first basic question. Um, in spite of all the adversity you and your teammates and your bandmates faced in terms of imprisonment and persecution, what was your underlying motivation to really continue with your involvement and your protest? Mm, I think when you believe in something, uh, you have this urge to, to act. And if you, um, if you just put this away, it will haunt you and you will, um, you will regret about it for not doing something or not saying something for the rest of your life. And uh, back then, again, I want to mention, back then um, the conditions weren't that bad as it now. Um, and now look at me, like I'm in, I'm in Britain right now, I'm in Europe, majority of... Um, my colleagues from Bishred, um are in exile, are in exile. Um, and many, you know, many in interviewers asking like, oh, you're so brave, where's the courage you're coming from? But, you know, it's, um, we are safe. And uh, it's Ukrainian people that are like, very brave and like fighting for the country. And uh, we just trying to do what we can in this situation. Um. Your group's ethos of protesting has employed a variety of methods. It's ranged from art to music, as well as traditional methods. Um, was this a conscious decision, or was it more like of employing the shock factor to really catch attention and bring about that change you wanted? Um, I think, if we talk about forms, yeah. the, the Pussy Riot at the beginning in 2011 was the punk group first. Mm. Um, their music was punk. but. Time changes, we are changing, some people joining the group like me and other, many others, and uh, we just find new forms that we are comfortable with, and it's just great to try something new. Yeah, so it's not something, we don't have, um, we're not like a political party with a set of rules. We just, uh, yeah, we just um, collaborate with one, with each other, and uh, find the best form for us. Um, do you have a preference of using either music or art, or have you really found it not to matter and more the message to con consider it with the audience? I think form is very important because also you definitely think um, about the outcome. Um, but, you know, also I'm, um, me and Masha from Pussy Riot, Masha Lechner, who served two years in prison for this action, we're writing a second book right now. So I think it's also form and activism in a way. Um, 
And um, we have this uh, Riot Day show. It's her story uh, that I'm an editor. Um, and uh, we also record songs, anti-war songs. And uh, it's, it's different, but I do, um, I do enjoy it. And I think it's very important to enjoy the process. Even though like, it's, it's a big thing you know, to say, oh yeah, we're all artists and we enjoy the process. Yeah. Sometimes it's just like hell. But, um, uh, but when you get the result, you're satisfied and give you, gives you um, yeah, this wholesome feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in 2022, if I recall correctly, um, you were denied entry into Georgia, oh, yes. which is where you were living at that time. And you mentioned not receiving any official reason as to why that was. Oh, it's actually not very a political story. <laughs> it's, uh, I can tell you it's like a funny story. I have a, okay. I have a hater in the internet and uh, he just hates me for many, many years. Um, and um, he moved to America, I know. And uh, he just, um, he, you know, he's stalking me. Okay. So he sees that I'm, my tour is over because I'm posting something in stories. And uh, he just... Um, Mm, realized I will go back to Georgia. So he sent the letters to all, um, basically all um, authorities in Georgia that I'm a terrorist. Uh, <laughs> and uh, um, that's it, that's the whole story. <laughs> yeah, th that's why I wasn't. But there is a, a general problem with um, Georgia and uh, activists trying to enter yeah. the country. Um, it's connected to the government um, and uh, what's going on in Georgia. I don't know if you're interested in that in Georgia yeah. or no. Um, they have uh, quite pro-Russian um, government, but uh, people, especially young people, they are um, pro-Ukrainians. They are pro-Europe. Uh, they want to be. Uh, they want Georgia in the um, European Union. So that's that's kind of why it's happening, because um, pro-Russian government in, um, like Georgian dream, this is political party, they, um, they don't want activists to do something in Georgia. Yeah, yeah that's why this usually happens. Oh, um, that's interesting. Um, your group often tours around Europe, and do you think you've observed that, especially in the sad aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, most countries' governments' reception of Russian dissidents or Ukrainian refugees has been more welcoming, or has that change really been just superficial? I think in general, people are mm, tired of the war. Yeah. And I think that's our job to remind them that um, the war is still going on, and it's not that far as you think. Um, they, it really depends, because Europe is different, you know? When yeah. you go to uh, Eastern Europe, yeah. you feel very good, because, uh, um, because they know, because they, they, yeah. uh, they were all yeah. together in Soviet Union with Russia, so they know uh, what um, occupation means mm. and uh, how Russia can be um, scary for the countries that are neighboring, that are neighbors. And they understand the price that you need to pay. So their people do understand, and uh, they are very, very welcoming um, towards Ukrainians. Um, in, I don't know, in Switzerland, when we played our show, people are just, I don't know, I think they're, they're too happy in general. <laughs> because they, you know, they're like, oh yeah, bro, it's cool, guys. Uh, we, we'll buy you a t-shirt. But it's hard to, 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 to break this wall. Yeah. Even though they are maybe empathetic, but uh, it's harder because yeah. it's just harder. 
Um, yeah, it really, really depends on the place. About Russian uh, dissidents, um, you know, I'm not seeking country that would be like happy to, to have me. Um, or like in general, I'm not really paying attention to that because, I don't know, I think it's quite imperious to be like, oh yeah, but what about me? I'm Russian dissident, you know, when the war is happening. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not really looking at and paying attention to that factor. Um, coming more towards the recent history of Russia, do you think that the culture of dissent is very much gaining a stronghold among the civilian population? Do you anticipate a pivotal turning point in the country's reception of Putin's regime? What do you mean by dissent? Um, protest against Putin. Oh, you mean like yeah. it's more indifferent now? Yeah, do you think it's more different? Do you think people are more against Putin's regime I mean, let's, in terms of let, let's, uh, um, Okay, that's two different things. Uh, the, the, the lack of the protest, mm. like something yeah. big, and uh, the opinion of the people. Mm. Um, it's like quite a Soviet tradition yeah. to, you know, to in public behave in one way yeah. and then um, and never tells your real thoughts. Oh, okay. And then uh, um, in the kitchen, maybe at home with your friends, yeah. you can uh, discuss those ma matters. Um, but, you know, we could ask or we could, you know, convey a survey in, in the street. Like, will you protest, will you go out right now and protest if you will face 10 years in prison? And I will count these, <laughs> how many people would say, oh, yeah, I would. Um, obviously, but it didn't happen in one year when the Putin started a full-scale war. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, in 2012, the Bolotnik case really was a good example. The, the, you know, the very like, public trial um, demonstrative to everyone is like a sign to the society uh, that this is will happen if you will protest and if you will want to be um, dangerous to the regime. So obviously, um, with the lack, I mean, among the majority, like major population, like let's, like people that are used to um, watch TV and not really looking for, I don't know, some telegram channels, or maybe they don't know about them. But major population, they uh, watch TV for like, I don't know, 10 years at least of like propaganda every day from, all, all channels are the same. The budget is different. That's the only difference between them. Um, and uh, you, understand, you, you hear some news about, yeah, this guy um, got six years just to try to grab a policeman because the policeman was um, beating his friend. And they were like, oh no. <laughs> No, I'll, I'll try to, you know, just, it calls, um, what is called, um, internal immigration. That's, that's, I think, the state that a lot of Russian people live in now. They're, um, the escapism, yeah. because you can't really change anything, and this is the thought that's been put there for the whole, uh, for the whole period and Putin started a president to become he became a president. Yeah, that was the major thing, and it's and it's really resonates with people because in Soviet Union it was the same. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so do you think for instrumental change to really happen within the Russian political structure, it should be it would be more of a change in the civilians' attitude towards the regime, as you mentioned, or more of a change in the international reception of Putin's regime? Because your speech also cited 
a degree of complicitness among the West. Yeah, but if we talk about inside the country, yeah. people have been told for all these years that Europe hates them, like, and that uh, the West is bad. Yeah. But it's actually interesting, interestingly enough, when there was a World Cup in 2018 mm. in Russia, people, if that thing about the isolation and, I don't know, iron cur mm. curtain would work, uh, people would not be so happy to see mm. so many uh, foreigners mm. and be like hugging them and be like mm. trying to, I don't know, teach them some, something in Russian, mm. etc. Even like I'm mentioning World Cup and it was, it means, it seems like it was a thousand years ago mm. because I can't imagine something like that. There's no turning point for Russia right now already mm. if um, Russia will not accept and reflect on all of the mistakes uh, the country did without reparations, without, you know, there will be a process. And, but who would start it? So I don't, yeah. Me personally, I don't think that Russia has um, stand a chance to be a happy country after what, she, like after what this government did. Um, you mentioned um, the 2018 World Cup yeah. and your group famously yeah. protested against yeah. it. Um, we've since had the World Cup in Qatar where um, similar protests on, on the humanitarian track record was also conducted. Do you think moving forward, um, there should be a complete boycott of these sports events or should there be more engagement in terms of the country's regime so as to actually ensure that these issues get addressed? You mean uh, boycott of events in Russia? Or? Yeah, boycott of events in Russia. Do we have any mean? Russian events in Russia? <laughs> I don't know, to be honest. I'm not good in sports, but... I think there is um, a F1 race that goes on every ah, year. Oh, maybe in Sochi or something. Yeah. Um, it's quite high profile. <laughs> Oh yeah, um, I don't know. I, if, if, I think I, I didn't. I, I'm not going to Formula One. You know, <laughs> I'm not the the audience at all. Um, yeah, you know, I think it's it's a matter of personal choice. I wouldn't say, oh, boycott is stupid because you know all of these events they are sponsored by um, Russian oligarchs mostly, like Gazprom and big uh, oil companies. So I think it's a really personal choice. So I don't have any like universal advice to it. But definitely, when the World Cup started, there was lots of protests that this is championship on torture or for tortures of tortures. Because on the same year, um, they've been discovered uh, many cases of, um, in, in videos as well, from the um, penal colony, how um, 11 um, prison workers uh, were torturing um, one guy. And these videos were very brutal, and uh, lots of people protested. Um, about it, and especially they really, uh, there was a good, um, you know, when such events hap happens, uh, happen, um, a lot, there is a lot of attention, so you can use it. So a lot of uh, foreigners will come, and a lot of journalists, so maybe um, you could use it as a stage, you know, to, to talk about important uh, matters. But some people would say, of course, as it was in the championship, like World Cup, sorry, um, 
in 2018, like, oh, they they, they, they spoiled the, the game. Like, we want to watch sports, we don't want politics, uh, which I guess, you know, everyone has a right to be, uh, um, I don't know, dull, indifferent. <laughs> but, and I'm not gonna, yeah, I'm not trying to change it. Yeah, some people do feel for this topic, some don't. But um, you don't need to ask them <laughs> to do something, yeah. Um, coming more to your art, do, did you have an artistic background before you joined Pretty Right? I was a cop, <laughs> I remind you. I was a cop, I was a, a cop, I became a cop when I was 18 years old. I was a cop for one year and then I left. So I don't think um, I have some degree in that. But um, I was, um, you know, I was going, when I was at school, like some mm -hmm. drama classes or something like that, yeah. But nothing, um, I don't have a professional education yeah. in that. Um, yeah. Did you have any influences that shaped your work or was it more of an instinctive choice that really shaped the mm. kind of work you do? I think uh, my major motivation, um, because I, again, because I was working in police and I saw this injustice towards myself, towards other workers, towards people, um, towards citizens, and I've my ma major motivation was not that I, I don't know, listened to some group and wanted to be like them. My ma motivation was to, like, do something about it. Now I know of it. Um, yeah, that was my major motivation, I think, back then. Um, just the last question before we open it up to the audience. Um, what, what do you anticipate your group doing in the next two years? Um, any future plans that you would like to share with the audience? And how do you expect the general public to really support your work? Um, the, we are going to Canada and America next month to, with our Ride Day show. We're going to raise money for the same hospital that we are supporting for the one year already, a bit more. Um, and it's actually great because we are in touch with the head of the hospital and he's sending us some improvements that they were achieved. Um, and the, these improvements were achieved on the money that we gave him. And it just, uh, it just like melts my heart. But also, it's like also dark feeling because the reason of it, it's because my country yeah. um, started a war against uh, their country. And now they have like, I don't know, win no windows. Um, but we're gonna, I don't know, we're gonna um, probably in two months in this period, we're gonna publish a new uh, Antebo song um, me and Masha were writing a book, another book, but it's you will already forget about me when it's going to be published. Um, so yeah, you can um, always. Um, I'm not asking to support us. I'm asking to support Ukraine. I think, and you can always donate to some um, charities. Uh, you can work um, as a volunteer. Um, I think there, there are many ways. I don't know about how um, is with uh, refugees now in, in Britain, but if it's still like going on, and uh, I know that many um, organizations, they really need uh, volunteers to host. So there are many ways to, to, to be useful. Very s small things, but uh, it's very important that as many people will do small things and will be better as a society, yeah. Um, thank you for that. If anyone in the audience has any questions, um, 
Just raise your hand and we'll have an EM come to you with a mic. Yeah, in the front row. How do you see Putin's rule ending? Do you see this as the beginning of autocracy, the beginning of a new Soviet sort of style? Or do you see this ending in any other way, really? I think, um, of course, there are different, very, lot, lots of different scenarios, but the, the major factor is the outcome of the war. Um, if uh, Putin will lose, it will mean the end of his regime, and uh, that's why um, I think our country will also profit from Ukraine's win in this um, war. But, um, of course, I'm not naive to think that if it's going to be somebody but not Putin, like let's say he'll be like, oh yeah, I'm old, I need a successor, and someone will come from his circle and it will be a little bit better. Uh, but as I said, um, nothing will drastically change if Russia will not reflect on the, at first on Soviet Union and the, the crimes that Soviet regime uh, did. Um, and uh, about all of the tragedies, all of the lies. Um, so it's not only about Putin, but the society. You know, it's not Putin who was raping himself Ukrainian women on the, at the front. And I'm scared to be like, in the same country, even though I'm not allowed there anymore, um, in the same country um, with those people. Because they are coming back and they live their like, um, quiet life after, I don't know, stolen washing machines from Ukraine and sending them back home. Um, it's more about society and I think um, now we do have a crisis in that regard. Um, so yeah, I think the major point is the outcome of the war, yeah. Uh, the best case scenario, of course, it's the hug, uh, it's the, the tribunal, it's, I don't know, us playing <laughs> outside of the hug uh, court. Um, yeah, but, and the, the whole um, um, bars will be open for political prisoners, and, but this is the, you know, the ideal day that I could think of, yes, but uh, unfortunately the world is most, more cruel um, and... Um, yeah, and we need to face the responsibility. And uh, yeah. Um, does anyone else have any questions? Yeah. Hi, thank you for your talk. Hi. Considering how the West, the EU, the UN, and other such organizations have acted since Putin came to power. Do you have much faith in them to affect change within Russia, or do you feel like there needs to be more pressure from grassroots organizations like yours for them to do anything useful? Um, when the war started, um, you know, um, many journalists were um, publishing interviews with us saying, oh, you know, if, only if the world would listen to Masha and Nadia, for example, back then when they were giving their speeches and saying how it's dangerous to deal with Putin. Um, but 
I don't think we need to really like reflect on that and be like, oh, we told you so. Uh, because obviously it's not a mistake. And that was, um, I think it was just ignorance and um, business. And uh, now I think if we talk about Britain, Britain is quite prominent in supporting Ukraine uh, in this war. Um, you see, the problem is um, while European countries are still um, debating whether they should <laughs> buy Russian gas and oil or not, uh, Putin is already making ties with Iran, North Korea, and they're already um, adapting. So I think because of this time, um, that was crucial. Because now, you know, we can't ask North Korea to put sanctions on Russia. <laughs> yeah, uh, or we can't influence these countries. We can't influence Iran. Um, but we can influence other countries, yes. It's, um, I think you always can, can do better. And, uh, and I am genuinely angry that, uh, you know, all these years they were shaking his hand and uh, recognized him as a president because it was, um, it was good for them as well. Um, you know, Russia, uh, we taught in school that Russia is a democracy. <laughs> Um, in some schools in the West, I heard that they teach that Russia is a dictatorship. But in reality, um, Russia is a authoritarian state with, you know, mimicking democratic procedures because it's uh, easier to deal with the West if you're going to be a democracy. We still have elections, we still have an access to the internet, uh, but th the question is what happens after and who will win this, those elections. So, but they're still um, parodying these, and they are elections, and they need to falsify all of these documents, and they will do this again and again, but still, um, because it's more profitable to be a democracy and deal with the West. Um, yeah, but, and I'm sure the West knew uh, how those elections are being um, done. Yeah, and I'm, I am angry, but anger, it's not, um, productive feeling, I think. So we just need to think what to do and how to... Um, because I still, uh, when we are in Europe, in some countries there are still right-wing politicians, um, and it's known that Putin is bribing them. Uh, Putin is, is uh, sponsoring many right-wing um, movements, and uh, some of these people then become, you know, members of the parliament, etc., etc. Um, so we are naive to think that, you know, West already did everything it could and all the countries already supporting Ukraine. Yeah, that would be, you know, political points maybe before the, before the new elections to say, yeah, we're supporting Ukraine, we are very empathetic, but in reality you really need to check on the money and the people. Um, yeah, and I was, I, I was surprised how many people in Britain, like how many, uh, Russian oligarchs live here and store their money that they stole from Russia and uh, all of their children are studying here. Not here, I don't know how many of them are in Cambridge, maybe you know better. Maybe some, maybe some of them here, I don't know. Um, uh, but um, it's like, I don't know, it's like virus, you know. So, um, so yeah, we shouldn't um, be naive and being... Um, 
stopped just because we heard, oh, we gave some amount of money to Ukraine already and it's done. Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, it's a process, unstoppable one. Thank you for your speech. Thank it you. was truly incredible. Um, I just wanted to ask because this, the, the war in Ukraine seems so black and white mm -hmm. in the West and it seems so cosmic and so large scale and really it is truly about people. So my question is, should the war end? Would you, are you looking forward to returning home? And what does the process of rebuilding Russia after this look like? What after the, the end of the war? Yes, yeah, so, so should the regime topple, what kind of process of rebuilding? I mean, it will be a new cultural identity, a new political identity. Should Would you look forward to helping rebuild that? Would you rather stay away? I know a lot of people find it very difficult to return to a country that's done them wrong. So yeah. I'm just wondering what, what that would look like for Russia and what that would look like for you. I think uh, we can look at the Germany because it's a great example of uh, how a country can um, survive after um, the war, after being uh, somebody who attacked and uh, um, caused so many um, grief in the world. Um, that's pro this is the process of um, identification and uh, reparations and it is very important, and we do have examples to look for. Um, but, you know, I think it's all after the war. We don't know when it will be, when, how it will be. Um, I think we don't need to... What we, what we do need to do now is to focus on what's today. Because uh, after the war can be very fucking scary if we're not gonna <laughs> think of what's today. It will be like, oh yeah, one day I'll go and get back to Russia, everything will be cool, somebody will build a new society, <laughs> somehow it will just appear. Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's, it's uh, very um, challenging. It's interesting how in, in um, mm, for example, in Germany, when the whole process of denazification and this a uh, whole period happened, and um, you, you really see, you know, the difference, not, not the difference with Nazi Germany, of course, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying something had really changed, fundamentally changed, and the people, and the trauma, and there was, like, I guess, the, the, the guilt, and you feel it. But if we go to Austria, Austria didn't go through the same process, and uh, it's really, you see, it's really, Mm, can be really different. Um, so yeah, I think it's quite, I don't know what to answer what will be after the war. Yeah, but it's very important process and uh, a very hard one. And maybe the biggest challenge that Russia is facing um, in modern history. And uh, would be very, we should be very naive maybe, or very positive mindset set it to think that we will go through this process very easy and very soon, yeah. Um, if we could go at the back. And the complicity of that 
in relation to the war. Um, what do you think were the factors that led to that being a dominant attitude within Russian society? And, and do the roots of that attitude go back um, a lot further than Putin and, and his regime of propaganda? Um, can, you, can you repeat that? Can you rephrase that for me, please? So what do you think has led to um, the, the attitude of Russians that you speak the, of? As what? The attitude of oh, Russians. The, the attitude of Russians that is, um, who are complicit with the war and, yeah. and complicit with Putin's attitude. And oh, is that, yeah. is that, are the roots of that older than Putin and his propaganda? Oh, yeah. Uh, and son, what will happen to those people and how, and yeah, about those, pe those people that support War. Yeah, it's interesting because um, we don't have any numbers because we have military censorship. We don't have any independent. Um, we don't have any independent uh, organization that would could convey this survey. Convey the survey. Yeah, um, we don't have the real numbers, and uh, and if Russians were very. Um, of course, there are Russians that are supporting the war, don't get me wrong. They are, um, but we would see quite a different picture. Because even um, one million of people wouldn't fled the country <laughs> after the, uh, the beginning of the war with Ukraine. Uh, many of them... Um, for example, the... the um, the stepfather of my uh, of the girl that I was studying in at school, um, he was um, he was working in the military, so he was one of the first who was uh, dra drafted, yeah. drafted, drafted uh, to the front, and he was like, oh yeah, I'll go, yeah, like finally I can I don't know go to war, um, but then. He saw what's going on there, and uh, you should understand it's like it's Russia. It's not China when you did when you said something and everything is done. <laughs> it's Russia when you say something and then uh, the money just disappear like from the hierarchy. And then uh, uh, you see that the, those um, military people they need to uh, they need to uh, buy um, ammunition for themselves because it's not provided because there's no money for it because it was stolen. And those people that are coming to the front, some of them, I'm not saying everyone, but this particular man, he came there and he said they have nothing. They, they asked, uh, um, they asked, they told us to ask our wives to send them tampons in order, if you're gonna be wounded, you need some um, cotton to, to help yourself in that situation. So even, um, when they, when they hit the, the, the reality check, um, they, they might change their mind as well. Or, um, as we saw many interviews with, um, what they called, not hostages, but uh, m m um, war prisoners. War prisoners, uh, Russians in Ukraine. And um, when they're calling their moms and saying, like, it was complete bullshit, there's no Nazis here. And, uh, um, that they are ashamed of what they were doing because they thought and they've been told that they're going to enter the Ukraine and everybody will um, um, meet them with flowers and bread, you know. But then they realized that the, the, the people there be like, 
go away. We don't want you here. Who told you to come here? But like, it's not complete nonsense. We don't need you. You don't need to save us from anyone. We want to leave. Um, so many people that been um, that been there, they changed their minds. Um, but uh, I think I'm not saying they're not responsible. I'm not trying to um, justify them. I'm just trying to give you a perspective of the um, give you a perspective. I think if um, in one day um, for the next ten years you're gonna have uh, Russian propaganda or like, but gonna be Russian style, but about Britain. I don't know, like like the GP. I don't know <laughs> what is the channel you have um, in all channels. And on online news, newspapers, you love newspapers, guys. <laughs> so every, uh, every day, there are going to be five different newspapers talking about the same thing. You all, the, the whole society will change. But again, I'm not justifying those people. I'm just telling you how it's, how it's been done. And uh, I, to be honest, I don't feel pity towards those people that are being killed by Ukrainian army. Because if you decided to go and kill other people, that's, I'm not going to, like, cry about you at all and uh, um, but this is how it's been done so I think if because we all <laughs> today we all talk about what if when after the war yeah and the, all those um, categories so if they're gonna be um, even slightly different regime with uh, m more freedom and then access to the information and people would be <laughs> Um, and it will be very accessible, like television. Um, many people will change their minds and be like, oh, that was complete bullshit and that was just brainwashed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I hope I answered something. Um, if we could just go there. Um, thank you for your talk. You. Um, I just wanted to ask about, you know, we're seeing like now the war in Israel and um, Gaza and the Russian-Ukraine uh, war has dragged on for a long time. Are you concerned that as, I suppose, it becomes more normalised in the news cycle, um, that there's going to be a declining political will from the West to support Ukraine? And what the you know what activists need to be doing to to keep the support for the Ukraine going? Mm. Yeah, and you're right about this whole cycle of violence that just appeared, and it seems like a like a trend. And uh, people do. Um, I mean, it's not that. Um, of course, I. Mm, I don't treat the, the, the war um, and the conflict that's been 75 years already, right? And now it's an escalation. I don't treat this as a, as a problem to Ukraine right now in terms of um, support. Because the, those people that are in the Middle East, they also need to be supported. Um, but definitely people's attention is dragged in the new, um, at the new thing. You, you can't fight that. You can just... Um, be consistent in what you're doing, and um, I mean, Biden said that you know the, the conflict in the Middle East it will not stop us from our plans to um, help Ukraine. 
and they are sending weapons and money. Um, yeah, to be honest, I don't know what to do in that situation. I'm not, um, I don't have a piece um, in politology what to do in, the, in those situations, but um, I think uh, as an activist, it's always um, your work to find new ways to attract people's attention because people are tired of the war. Unfortunately, it is. Um, uh, but it doesn't mean that we need to be stopped. And sometimes, um, sometimes it can be very energy um, mm, sucking, energy yeah. sucking. Um, because I was working with political prisoners and <laughs> Trust me, it's like burnout every day because you work with political prisoners in Russia and you understand that there is no lawyer that will help actually because it's already been decided. But there are some loops and uh, there are some ways to at least influence the, the um, and also uh, public, um, public opinion, it's very important. Um, sometimes you do feel very, you feel worn out and burned out. Um, you just need to maybe cry a bit and then uh, wake up uh, in a good mood and uh, think of what you can be, what, what can you done differently to achieve your goal. And um, yeah, I think that's the only thing that can be done. Also, um, I want to add, as an activist, um, it just keep on. Um, because, you know, a lot of politicians say, like, oh, we will do that and we will do that, or just statements. So I think as an activist in any country, you need to remember them, to be able to remind them about them, and to influence um, the situation around this candidate, maybe, on, on elections. Um, yeah. So. If we could go at the back, over there. Uh, thank you so much um, for spending your time with us. Um, I'm curious about uh, your reaction to the recent, I'm not sure if you want to call it a coup, from the Wagner Group in Prigozhin. Um, I think to the outsider, that appeared to be a crack in the armor and revealed some weakness um, that Putin had developed recently. Is that the case? Was that a, a momentary blip? Or do you think that that signals um, something more to come in the future? Um, yeah, I remember this night. I don't think that any of my friends or I uh, were, were going to sleep before the end of this whole thing because it was just like a show online, you know? And we were all um, checking the, the news. That was an interesting situation because it's like one fascist against another fascist. Um, and you can't really, you know, bet on somebody, but, you, but it really felt um, in Russia, even through the people that hate Prigozhin, everything what he represents, that please, like, go and kill him. <laughs> because this is the people's desire and dream of changes even though military coup is not, you know, maybe, especially done by Prigozhin, it's not uh, very promising for the country in the future. Um, Prigozhin, it's interesting because he's not from 
mm, Czechist circle uh, or special service because majority of uh, Putin's circle is um, Putin is surrounded by people from uh, special service um, like secret police etc and uh, Prigozhin wasn't like that at all um, interesting how um, Russia reacted because um, Prigozhin and his army, when they were going um, on the way to Moscow, um, when they already got Rostov on, on Don, and they um, occup occupied, um, they didn't even occupy, the people like opened doors, you know, for them. I don't know what it's called when you take something. They took it? I don't know. Um, they um, destroyed several uh, helicopters of Russian army. And several um, pilots were killed. They they dead. They died, and there was no criminal case about it. What Putin said, and he said, thanks to our pilots, <laughs> that was their sacrifice to stop the revolution. And I can't even imagine what their family is thinking because you know there was nobody. Uh, he was just freed to to Belarus. Yeah, but we knew, we knew it's just a matter of time for him to be killed afterwards. Um, I think, um, yeah, that night we all got disappointed, obviously. And um, still are rumors, you know, is he really dead? Because uh, it's also interesting that they never showed us a body. Uh, the, the, uh, the cemetery was um, full of policemen, surrounded by police, and no people could come. Um, we only saw, we didn't even saw a coffin, I think, or maybe we saw, but it was obviously closed, but still. Um, so there is still, there are, there are different opinions about is he really dead or no. Um, I think uh, Putin, he learned from this situation, the government, the Kremlin, they learned from this situation. And uh, I think it was a great sign to anybody who wanted to uh, betray him if they wanted. I mean, we already had many cases proving that. Alex, uh, Alexander Litvinenko, for example, um, the, the greatest, I think, example, um, because also it happened in Britain, so you probably all know about it. Um, yeah, but it was just another sign, like, this is what will happen. I'm not, I'm not forgiving, never. So, yeah. But it was fun to watch. Thank you for the show, at least. Um, we just have time for one last question. So, yeah, over here. Yeah, to you. Um, okay, we focused a lot on Russia-Ukraine, which is a now issue. But I'm thinking more so about the core philosophies of your group and the feminist aspects of it. In recent years, as Putin's been vamping up his kind of draconian regime, how has the state and the situation women have been in in Russia gotten worse? It's, you mean the, how it is with feminine, uh, women's rights in yeah. Russia? Yeah. Well, uh, in 2017, um, Russia decriminalized domestic violence. So if... Uh, um, if you would um, beat me, punch me, and I will have a bruise afterwards. Um, yeah, I just needed a man in an example. <laughs> um, so I'll have a bruise, that's a crime. 
But if we are married, it's not. Because uh, this is uh, our internal thing, our, it's our business, and government should in, shouldn't interfere with the family, because it's, it's, it's their family, it's sacred, they shouldn't uh, put their nose inside it, inside of it. And as a result, of course, more criminal, uh, sorry, more, more cases of domestic violence, uh, those, um, th those cases that were in, um, in statistics before, they're not there anymore because they're not crime anymore. Um, even though women, they don't trust to uh, police, they don't, they really rarely um, going to police to report um, domestic abuse or um, rape. And uh, we, because, you know, we had several big cases of, um, for example, I forgot the city, but it happened um, four years ago, I think, or around there. Um, a woman, um, a neighbor called the police saying, um, I think I can hear that he's killing her right now. They're screaming. Um, and there's a like, big argue, and I, you probably should see, like you should come and see. Um, and she said like, yeah, I think he's killing her. And, he's, and the pol police said, uh, oh well, when she will be killed, call us then. And she was killed actually. So, it, because uh, you should understand police, uh, they're not trained about domestic um, violence. They're, they're not trained how to work with the victims. We don't have shelters. We don't have any of that. Um, we had, um, before the new law about foreign agents, uh, and now foreign agent can be anyone at all. There's no like clear char characteristics. Um, now, we had this amazing uh, organization, Nasilu.net, which is uh, no that violence, like no to violence. Um, and Anna Rivina, the director of this uh, great organization, and Jua, uh, she appeared on the Time magazine on the cover. And after that, she was recognized as foreign agent. Straight after that, and they had offices. They were providing shelters and they were providing uh, lawyers to the uh, victims. And it's all not government, like it's all um, NGO, like private money, <laughs> charities. And uh, um, yeah, and when, she appeared, when she was recognized as foreign agent, um, um, the, the tenant of the office that she was renting, he um, stopped the contract, he said, no, you should go out. And basically, um, there are many obstacles because if you are doing some um, public work, it's like, it's equals that you're an activist. And it's bad. And if you want to do something, you should go to the, through government. But uh, some people are trying to do so, and I know them, uh, but it's really a little amount of people that can uh, manage. Um, about... Um, one second. Yeah, I wanted to add something because, mm, well, also, it's the domestic violence is growing also because um, the war in Ukraine. Those soldiers coming back home, 
and the, with post-traumatic syndromes, etc. And there's, there were so many examples of so, so many cases of um, um, violence against women and kids um, from the soldiers that are coming back from the war. Um, also, um, feminist is uh, like a swear word that government use, like to call you something, oh, feminist, that's, we need to, um, we have, you know, thousands of committees about um, traditional values, um, and um, the, the status quo is that we are a traditional country, we don't need gays, we, uh, it's now in constitution that uh, the, the marriage is between woman and a man, and of course, this climate is no good for, for women. Also, um, the topic of um, female circumcision, um, which is quite still popular procedure on the um, North Caucasus, is like Dagestan, Chechnya, Ingushetia, the, all these republics. And even in Moscow, uh, journalists found, I think, three years ago, that's in some clinics in Moscow, you can take your daughter and they're gonna do that uh, procedure. So it's on the menu, it's on the, on, the, uh, on the website that she can be circumcised. For those who doesn't know what is it, is when your clitoris is cut off uh, because of the idea that um, your body is for, not for the pleasure, and uh, you need to produce, and you need to have sex only for that. Yeah, that's um, mm, in those republics because they are radical. Um, there are radical I Islam there, so it's a procedure usually um, popular there. And. Uh, also about those republics, it's, uh, you probably know about Chechnya because it was in the news. Um, you probably maybe heard of Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, who is the president of Chechnya, because um, um, I think in 2018 there was a breakout in the news about gay prisons in Chechnya. That people, but it's quite normal practice in Chechnya, uh, Chechen Republic activists and uh, gay people and, in general, anti-Kadyrov people, uh, they are just vanishing. And uh, people don't know what's going on uh, with them, where, they are, where are they. Um, and the many of the women that are trying to escape, um, for example, my friend, uh, also another pussy riot activist, Lucia Stein, she's, um, she's working with this um, uh, NGO, um, Sosko Kazus, they're helping uh, gay people and uh, women to escape those uh, republics uh, because they're persecuted them. So many of these girls uh, that are escaping to Moscow um, because they're lesbians, for example. Um, and also, same happens with the men as well. Um, th those people, they're um, going to Moscow, but then... Um, and they're trying to, you know, to move to other, to other countries, some European country. And because it's a process of the visa and everything, um, their um, parents would go to police in, in, in their cities in the Caucasus. And then, because those 
especially Chechen Republic, it's not... We have constitution. There is no constitution. There's just Ramzan Kadyrov and people that work for him. Like, like just he, his, I don't know, tribe, I don't know. Like, it's just his people. And they will obey everything. There is no law. Um, so those, those people, like men and gay men and gay women, they'll be kidnapped from Moscow and will put back to Chechen Republic. Because they're going to be, they can be stopped at the airport because somebody called and they will say, oh, you know, but we have an information that you committed a crime. So you need to come with us. And then they're going to be sent back to Chechen Republic and the God knows what's going on there with them. Because then they will always, they're forced to make a video when they say, oh, don't look for me, I'm fine. Um, I, I'm all right. I don't want, I, don't, I hate what you're saying that I'm a lesbian or I need help. I'm happy with my family now. They're all forced to make those videos. And again, there are going to be some, I don't know, representative of human rights of Chechen Republic sitting like this with her. And then she'll be, she'll be like just looking down and uh, be like, yes, yes, I'm happy. Uh, stop your nonsense. I'm, I don't need help. So it, it is horrible. And um, um, the, 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 the climate in our country in terms of the regime and uh, the uh, repressions, it's not helping because all of these great organizations we had work, uh, works on charity. And now if you donate to them, you can be also considered to be a foreign agent because you are donating to the foreign agent. It means that this organization represents the like, foreign interests, like enemies. Um, yeah, so it's not, I can't give you anything positive in that regard because it's very, very bad. But uh, there are people on, on um, there, there are people that are helping them. And it's just important to like, help them and know about them and uh, donate and contribute and, and, you know, share. Yeah, that's all what we can do. Yeah. Um, on that note, um, our event draws to an end. And um, please join me in thanking our speaker for her time tonight. Thank you.